Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I want to sit here and be able to have good thoughts of Matthew and laugh at all the memories and all the time I shared with him and stuff. But it's like, how can I do that until I know I can confirm that he's no longer here? You know, I know in my heart, I know in my heart something happened to him. You know, people, when they find bodies, it's like you almost, you don't hope that's him, but it, it almost would be better to have an answer rather than doing this, because this is awful. This is the story of Matthew Weaver. He's a 21-year-old who loves racing cars and rescuing dogs and was training to follow in his father's footsteps as a lineman for an AT&T subcontractor when he disappeared 10 months prior to the date I'm recording this. What's different about this from the Adea Shabani case is that it took place in my backyard in Malibu, California. And on August 10th, 2018, just moments before he went off the grid, Matthew Weaver left a very strange cry for help behind. At 11.30, he calls Melissa Sanchez. And we have a screenshot of her communications with him. She doesn't answer. She texts him back at 11.49 saying, I'm at work, what's up? Then he texts her back. And I'm going to read this to you just as he wrote it. And he said, like some crazy is going on shit going on. Second text right after, I just to talk while I have the chance. Those were his final communications. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. 
June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Appendix 3, The Strange Case of Matthew Weaver. I first met Matthew Weaver's family in the mountains here at the corners of Stunt and Saddle Peak Roads, near where Matthew's car was last seen. They'd organized a search by themselves to look for Matthew, but he'd already been missing for two months at that point, and they were about to give up hope. The local sheriff's department had recommended that they hire Jaden, and they soon began working with him. Meanwhile, I raised a reward of $50,000 for them, and along with a woman named Rose Marie, who you'll learn about in season two, I organized a press conference to get the word out to the media. This was not for a podcast, but just to help the community. However, I was speaking with the family just a couple weeks ago, and they'd been listening to this podcast and asked about the tip that came in from a listener that cracked the Adea case. And so we thought that maybe lightning could strike twice. Today, Matthew Weaver's family is going to share the full story of what happened in the hopes that maybe you can help. Listen really carefully as we walk through it, especially the details from the morning Matthew disappeared. And at the end of this podcast, I'm going to make some very specific requests. Even if you don't have direct information or direct knowledge of the people involved, Even if you don't live in Los Angeles, there are specific ways that you can actually help solve this case. So let's begin with getting to know Matthew Weaver a little bit better. This is Matthew's stepmom, Brooke. If I could describe Matthew to people, I mean, on the outside, he always just was, you know, appeared so cheerful, so happy. He was the kid that liked to make everybody laugh. Goofy, kind of clumsy and... Loving, he had a good heart. Matthew was the type of kid that honestly would help any person in need, a stranger off the street. He'd give you his last $5, 
You know, he'd pull over and help somebody change a tire. Like, he just had a good, he really had a good heart. Really good heart. I noticed you're using the past tense for him. Yeah, I know. I always catch myself doing that too, but um, it's, it's hard to have any, you know, hope that he's still out there. I mean, it's been so long and, and I, I'm very close with Matthew and he, he wouldn't do this to us. He would not put his little sister and his brother through this. This is Matthew. What is beautiful dog right here. So handsome. How you say what's up to that homie Shadow? That's right, bro. He honestly, he personally struggled with um, just just his his family life growing up. Although, you know, he, he had me in his life, it, it wasn't always consistent because Matt and I went through a really nasty divorce. Matt is Matthew Weaver's father, who I'll refer to as Matt Sr. Um, I know that messed him up a lot. And he never, ever got over the fact that, that his mom left. You know, that just, he could never understand that. His dream was just to have like, a tight-knit family, you know, he wanted to do, he wanted to be close with his brothers and sisters, and that's how Matthew was, that was important to him. Like, he never had a fun, great childhood. It was always like moving around, being passed around to family members. Like I said, Matt Sr. was very young when he had them, and so there was just never any stability for Matthew, ever. You know, he wanted to feel wanted, and I think from, from the time he was born, almost, it's like, he, he had that feeling of like not being being wanted. And I know a lot of that stems from, from when, when your mom leaves when you're a child. That's probably a tough thing to get over. Just to clarify, when Brooke mentions Matthew's mom, she's referring to his biological mom, who left when Matthew was only four months old. Vanessa, Matthew's ex-girlfriend, recalls meeting him in high school in Simi Valley, where they both live. Simi Valley is a more suburban part of Los Angeles. It's only 35 miles and a whole world away from Hollywood. Here's Vanessa. He was 16, I was 15, and we dated ever since. Uh, what attracted me to Matthew was he always kind of seemed like the outcast of the group. But he, he was just definitely different. He wasn't like everyone from around Simi, which is a really boring-ass place. Um, and so he definitely had like a, like a different vibe to him, just different personality. He was just like a troubled kid without, without a home. Less than four months before he disappeared, after being kicked out of his grandmother's house, which really added to his feeling of being unwanted. Matthew moved into his own place in Granada Hills in the San Fernando Valley. It had taken a notice on me that Matthew was definitely changing, uh, at least his living habits, because as soon as you walked into his room, there was always like just empty bottles of like hard alcohol and that he had been drinking and on the side of the bed, a new bottle that was ready to start drinking. He was definitely drinking a lot, more than usual, and Matthew was never, ever a drinker, so this was definitely something new.
Hunter, one of Matthew's closest friends, continues the story. Yeah, you know, I think definitely being on his own in the valley really uh, took a toll on him, really being super independent. You know, Matthew is, let's think, my fucking brother. I definitely realized that he uh, noticeably gone through something. And when you say noticeably, what, is, what was it you noticed? You know, our friends have always partied. Everyone, Matthew, you know, never really, I felt like never got into drugs up until maybe a year prior. He used to always drink. Uh, his drinking was definitely a problem. It was expressed by his friends that it was a problem, but he kind of dusted it off. He's like, it's alcohol. Doing coke got more frequently, doing acid got more frequently. And uh, it wasn't up until maybe, you know, a couple weeks before he went missing that he was like, all right, maybe there's, there's an issue here. He was missing work, you know, getting caught by his dad doing drugs. But uh, he was going through a lot of shit. And then one day, two or three months before he disappeared, Matthew began asking Hunter for a gun. I told him that I was worried. We got in a kind of little argument because he was very persistent about asking me to get, if I could get him one. I think part of it, you know, is he didn't really trust banks. Always carried cash around on him. And, um, fuck, you know, or men. I think every man probably goes through a phase where he's like, I want a gun. On August 9th, 2018, the day before he disappeared, Matthew slept in after a late night out with friends and went to work at 6 p.m. just to get paid. His boss gave him $400 in cash. And then Matthew went to see his father, Matt Sr. This is Matt Sr.'s recollection of that visit. I don't know who he was hanging out with. It didn't sound like good people. He had asked me, Dad, can I, you know, borrow one of your guns? He, the last time I had seen him, I had a, uh, just a 9mm, and um, he said, Dad, can you give me, uh, can I borrow it or anything? I said, no. You don't need a gun, you, you know, that's not going to happen. And um, he had completely changed. A complete change in his whole attitude, his mindset, and everything. That night, Matthew did something very unlike him. He asked if he could take a photo of his father's gun. He then posted a picture of it on Snapchat with the words, Game Over, beneath it. Afterward, Matthew went to see a member of his friend group that he'd only recently started spending more time with, Melissa Sanchez. She was the last person that Matthew Weaver is known to have seen. Here's Jaden with the details. Right, so what we know is that about 9 p.m. on the 9th of August, 2018, um, he called Melissa Sanchez. Her friends call her. She goes by also by Mel Sanchez. I would not really a girlfriend, just kind of a girl that he's hanging out with. She lives in Chatsworth. As far as we know, she works at a at a shoe store in the Topanga Mall. And uh, so he called her around 9 o'clock and met up with her. And then they kind of just went around that night. Uh, they went to a Walmart in Porter Ranch. They got gas. They went down 
Sepulveda and they went to some unknown location and bought cocaine from someone. Then after buying that, they went to a a marijuana dispensary. Basically, they had the cocaine, they had the marijuana. Uh, They sat in front of Melissa's house until about 5 a.m. that Friday morning. She claims that during that time, you know, Matt got very emotional. He was sort of venting to her about his life and just problems that he was having. She said that, like, he was basically in tears. She said that that whole interaction for her felt kind of awkward because, again, like, they're new friends. She didn't really know him that well. So all that information we got from her. She said that then around 5 a.m., again, this is Friday, she got out of the car, she went into her house, and Matthew left. Though Google wasn't tracking Matthew's movements, we're actually able to follow his route after leaving Melissa Sanchez's house by downloading his location history from Snapchat. At 5.15 a.m., According to his Snapchat pings, he turns off the 101 freeway in Calabasas and gets onto the Mulholland Highway. He drives around the windy mountain roads here, possibly racing his car, something he enjoyed doing, until he ends up at a parking lot at Stunt Road and Saddle Peak Road in Topanga Canyon, a popular lookout spot. Here's Matthew's ex-girlfriend, Vanessa, again. So this area was very familiar to him. I've personally gone there with him. Uh, it's a beautiful view to just go. He always enjoyed just looking at scenes and he takes pictures. Like he did that morning, he took a picture and posted it on Snapchat. But he also liked the canyons because he thought he was a speed racer and he, he likes taking those curves or <laughs> whatever he likes to do. This is where things start to get odd. At 6.57 a.m., Matthew Weaver stops in the parking lot and lookout point on Stunt and Saddle Peak Roads. Nearby, there's a big metal gate arm blocking a fire road. That gate is usually locked. Here's Matthew's stepmom, Brooke, describing the fire road. At first, you drive on it and it's, it's asphalt. But once you get a couple minutes up the road, it forks off. If you go to the right, it goes up to that microwave tower that used to be owned by AT&T. Somebody purchased it and they're renovating it. So there's a lot of work going on up there. There's a security guard up there, but that's up to the right. If you keep going straight, that's where it turns into dirt. I mean, this isn't a driving road. It's not even a well-kept fire road for four-wheel drive vehicles to go on. I mean, there's huge boulders. There's big cracks in the road. Some parts of it is honestly mind-blowing. And after sitting in the parking lot for 16 minutes, Matthew, or at least someone who had his car and phone, then opened the metal gate, which must have been left unlocked that day, and started driving down that fire road. Now we know that he entered there at around 7.15 through this gate because we have surveillance video from the microwave tower that shows his car. He's the only car that comes through. Then he goes off to the left onto a road that is very treacherous road. I mean, we're talking about a road that's definitely not paved. It's 
pretty worn down. There's a lot of crevices from like rain runoff and things like that. With his car, you know, it's a BMW 3 Series. I mean, any reasonable person would believe that that is a one-way trip. Because this may be difficult to visualize, if you go to our social media accounts at Instagram or Twitter, it's Live Die LA Pod. I've put up a map of his driving route with timestamps, as well as photos of the area. We find his car at the end of that road, and it's actually kind of in like a precarious spot. What Jaden means by precarious is that the road is so narrow at this point that it's almost impassable. One wheel of Matthew's car is literally hanging over the edge of the mountain, and the front of the car is blocked by a small boulder. It would have been impossible to drive the car any further without going over the edge of the road. At 8.21 a.m., almost an hour later, he calls his father, but his dad has no reception and misses the call. Then, at 11.48 a.m., over three hours later, he makes his next call to Melissa Sanchez. She doesn't answer, but immediately texts back and tells him she's at work. He then responds with his last known communication, which Jaden read verbatim earlier. I'm going to share the texts without the typos this time, so you can understand them better. Like some crazy shit is going on, I need to talk while I have the chance. There are no texts and no Snapchat pings after this. An hour later, Melissa responds, Are you okay? But it's too late. The area where Matthew gets stuck is at the end of the fire road, on a trail that circles a small hill with a concrete graffiti-covered platform on top of it. It's the site of an old fire tower and a spot with great views that's known to hikers on the Backbone Trail there as Rosa's Overlook. From the moment Matthew gets stuck at 7.28 a.m. to the time he sends his last texts at 11.53 a.m., Matthew doesn't leave this area. That's almost four and a half hours there on a Friday morning. What is happening in this window of time? And though there are no cars in the area, there are hikers. How could no one have seen Matthew or his car hanging over the edge of the road in this time? This is Matthew's father. Some days I don't know what to do. I don't know how to uh, go to work because every day I'm used to seeing him at work and then I have to go to work and see him and he's not there. I have to sit in the same trucks that he would sit next to me and go to work. I have to, I have to make myself get up and act like nothing's going on. I have to fake life to continue. Because if I don't, then I, I will go on a deep depression that I do not want to come out of. There's more to tell, but first I want to go over the four current theories on what could have happened to Matthew. One, Matthew was going through a rough period. Maybe he committed suicide and somehow no one's found his body yet. 
Perhaps his Snapchat photo of the gun with the words game over was a message. However, his friends don't buy into this theory. This is Jake and Fernando, two of his other close friends. If it was going toward like anything like being suicidal or anything like that, he was never a suicidal kid or nothing like that. Like he would never try and hurt anybody. He would never try and hurt himself. He was not that kid, not even close to being that type of kid. So even just taking a picture of a gun on my personal take, I think it's just him kind of like just showing off. Cause showing off, me and him, and we have friends that do have guns and everything and go shooting on a fun basis, you know? And then we also have those friends that are like gangbangers and everything and show it off to show almost like a seniority or like a, like a muscular type of image. Him posting that picture, I think it was just like, like showing, like showing what he, he did. It wasn't him like saying, oh, I'm in trouble or anything like that, or I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna do that type of thing. I don't think of it like that at all. The second theory. Matthew had been indulging in drugs and taking acid. Maybe he was tripping so hard that he either got lost or walked off a ledge or somehow harmed himself. From how long I've known him and what substances he has taken, I don't think it's anything that would be that mind-bending to think that he's in a different zone, so to speak. Although, who really knows what he took? I don't think that he took any super mind-altering drug that made him think something like that. Well, the only thing that he would do is acid. Yeah, it would be acid, but even then, we... Like, um, I've, I've had my fair chips on acid, and I it's not... Yeah, like, I don't know if you know, but, like, you take acid in, like, in a okay. couple of different ways, but most common, it's a little tab, and one tab will last about 46 hours. Take two, that'll last about five to ten hours. And we've seen him take two and be completely okay the whole time. He can kind of, he could, like... He can handle himself, right. yeah. Right. He could definitely handle himself. The third theory. We'd mentioned that the fire road splits. And on the right side, the road goes up to a microwave tower where there are several workers. Those of us searching for Matthew in the area, including myself, have had very bad experiences with angry workers. Maybe Matthew either saw something they were doing or got into an altercation with them. This is Brooke, Matthew's stepmom. We made certain to show up on a Friday, same exact time Matthew was there. We did it consecutively too, just to see what goes on here at 7 a.m. on a Friday morning. And that is a big work day for those construction workers. You'll see at least 10, 15 different trucks driving up there. There's probably at least 20 to 30 guys working up there when they're doing work. Supposedly one security guard. So with that being said, Obviously, that's more than likely why the gate was left open, because we saw them leave the gate open, because there was, you know, guys were coming at different times and driving the trucks back there. But we had a couple of encounters with them that were very strange. I personally was on one side of that road, I guess you want to call it, the, the hiking trail, and my brother-in-law was on the opposite side, and he was going off into the brush, and those guys were up there kneeling behind bushes 
watching him and I could see them straight from where I was. I'm like thinking, what are these guys doing, you know? Well, come to find out later, they were yelling at him, threatening him, telling him, get the fuck out of here. And he was like, what you, I'm not on this property. This isn't private property. And they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm looking for my nephew. And they're like, you're not gonna find him. The cops already looked, you need to get the fuck out of here. They were just really mean. And it doesn't even stop at that. The, the guy, Brad, the land surveyor, he drove his truck up there because he wanted to ask him a couple questions and they threatened him as soon as he got out of his car. He was like, whoa, what? they were like, what do you want? He's like, I just had a question about Matthew Weaver and they said, get the fuck out of here. They pulled Mace out and told him they were gonna mace him and he, he said it was odd. Just the combative behavior. So every single one of us that have had a run in with them, it's been like that and it's strange and it's like, it makes you think, okay, like, Either something's happening up there that you don't want us to know about, or you saw something. The fourth and final theory is that Melissa or Mel Sanchez knows something she isn't saying. In my opinion, I think what's her name knows something. Me and this kid know him. We would hang out with him almost every single day. And of all the homies, the friends that had his back, why would you contact her? And why would you say what you did? And especially if not trying to even like call the police or anything, why her? That's how I feel. So I'm thinking, as crazy as it sounds, something was either set up, or it could be as simple as a wrong place, wrong time, but it's more of the longest line of someone knew what to do, someone knew what they were doing, and they meant to do it. And also they knew who they were doing it to, and that's what I believe. What do you mean by the last part, they knew who they were doing it to? Because, like, I know there's some people that just go out and just, I should say, do things to random people. This wasn't the case. And the reason why I say that is because of the circumstances leading up to it. So he's out with this girl late at night. They go home, the pulling out of the money and then the buying the drugs. And then all of a sudden there's just no trace. And then all of a sudden comes up missing and no one knows what happens. And then all of a sudden these texts, because I didn't see the text messages until like two or three days after I found out he was missing, which is about like a week after he went missing. And all of a sudden I see these text messages and it's like, what is this? I personally still have not heard her story if she has even like, talked to anybody. After, after knowing that, that she was the last person to be with Weaver, all of our friends try to ask her like, yo, like what happened? Trying to like, not interrogate her, but like get her side of the story. It's her first story that was, she was with me Thursday night and, and a Weaver and someone else. As soon as Hunter told me that she said that, I was like, there's no way, because my time frame lands me in Las Vegas or like somewhere in Utah on my way to Vegas. So like I was out of state till Friday, how could she be saying? So then when they confront her about that, she was just like, oh no, I meant it was just me and, and Weaver. She changed up her story like three different times. Every time, every time someone asks her about like what happened. So she took me off everything. Like even to this day, I don't think I have run anything. And she's completely exited like from talking to a lot of people from Simi Valley. 
Matthew's best friend Hunter has some questions about Melissa Sanchez too, but he's afraid to share them publicly. The woman he was hanging out with the night before he disappeared, did she have any gang connections? Yeah, I'm not comfortable talking about that. The following is from a video that Melissa Sanchez posted on Snapchat eight days after Matthew disappeared. All of you guys are fucking retarded if you really think that I have anything to do with the disappearance of Matt. Like, literally retarded, because if you want to know where my fucking whereabouts were, Saturday, I was in Simi Valley. Sunday, I was at work. Friday, I was at work. Fucking dumb and ass boys. Little made him disappear, like, bitch, I am capable of all that. That's a whole ass body. That last line, in case you couldn't make it out, is, bitch, I ain't capable of all that. That's a whole ass body. Melissa did not return calls and texts seeking comment. As I speak, Jaden is in Simi Valley trying to track her down so that we can talk to her in person and at the very least, find out what Matthew talked about with her that night, which the family still doesn't know. I will either update this episode or add a new episode if we're able to speak with her. However, there is more to tell. And this, to me, is one of the most upsetting parts of the story. In January of this year, frustrated by the lack of progress, we tried an experiment. A drone pilot named Brad Baker took 797 aerial photographs of the area around Rosa's Overlook where Matthew's car was found. We then crowdsourced the analysis and sent out a press release offering a reward to anyone who could find evidence in these photos leading to the discovery of Matthew Weaver. And almost three weeks later, someone spotted a tiny red and blue dot that looked a little like Matthew's Angel's baseball cap, in the brush just beneath the fire lookout. Matthew's stepmom and sister went to check it out, and here's what happened. We weren't sure, you know, we honestly weren't weren't certain, like, if if that was even the hat or not, but we definitely, that same day, I'm like, Colleen, I'll leave work right now, let's go up there and look, you know, because the... uh, the guy who t- took the drone photos, he geotagged everything, which was amazing, very helpful. So we were able to get the exact coordinates of the hat. And once we got up there, I mean, I realized how close it was to that platform. It was almost amazing like that we, we missed it. Vanessa, Matthew's ex-girlfriend, located the online receipt for the hat. And it was, indeed, Matthew's Angels baseball cap. This was the first break in the case in some five months. There was also a torn, like a torn up white t-shirt that appeared to have like old blood on it. That was pretty close to the hat also. The hat we know 100% it's Matthew's. That was unquestionable, but the shirt, we want to know like that's Matthew's shirt. That tells a huge story. Cause that, it, I mean, that's a torn shirt with blood on it. That would give us an indication like something happened to him right here where this, at the spot. And what was your feeling when you first found When I first found that hat, my just, I mean, my stomach dropped, you know? I instantly just cried. I'm like, uh, I mean, we had gone that whole time, what, since August, with nothing. 
nothing, not even a trace of anything. Like, I mean, we were hoping to at least find like a shoe, a wallet, something, you know, nothing. And then, you know, finally, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to describe the feeling, but it's like, I don't know. It's, it's this, I can't even explain how it feels to, to live this life right now. As soon as they found the hat and the shirt, Matthew's family called law enforcement to retrieve them. They were careful to preserve the items so that they could be tested for Matthew's or someone else's DNA. The local Lost Hills Sheriff's Department in Malibu picked up the items. However, and here's where things get bureaucratic, technically, the case belongs to the Los Angeles Police Department because Matthew lives in Simi Valley, which is in the LAPD's jurisdiction. So the local Sheriff's Department wasn't able to do anything with the items other than contact the LAPD to pick them up and test them. Lost Hills came because we were in their jurisdiction at that point, and they recovered the items from us, and they literally had them for months before L.A. even came and picked them up. So, I mean, we were calling every few days, and they were like, no, they're not answering our emails. So, I mean, they just sat over there for a couple months, and finally, you know, they, they ended up retrieving them from us. Just a few weeks ago, Almost four months after the items were originally found, Matthew's sister, Colleen, received the following email from the LAPD detective assigned to the case. Good morning, Colleen. Our serology DNA unit would not be able to process the property that was found. The baseball cap and the pieces of white t-shirt, due to, at this time, there is no evidence of a crime. However, we are requesting Matthew's complete dental records. What's infuriating about this is not only are they not testing the items after all this time, but the LAPD refuses to give these items back to the family so the family can test it. So the biggest lead they have in nine months, there's nothing they can do about it. And let's not overlook the fact that they're just now asking for Matthew's dental records. Here's Colleen. And how long after he disappeared is this that they're actually asking, requesting his dental records? Nine months. I mean, at that point, Los Hills has had his dental records for months. So there's not really an excuse. I think it's just laziness, lazy police work. They don't give a shit. It's not their kid. And what was your feeling on getting the email? It's bullshit. And that's where things stand today in the case of Matthew Weaver. Bullshit. Of course, we're not done. And we will do everything we can legally to get those items back. Meanwhile, the family is asking for your help in the following areas. One, if you're in or visiting Los Angeles and plan on taking a hike, why not check out this area, Rose's Overlook? We will post a map of the location on our social media page at Live Die LA Pod. And be sure, if you do find any remains, not to touch or disturb them. Just call 911. If you find anything else suspicious, contact us immediately. Two, if you're involved in a search and rescue team or organization and want to make searching this area a project, contact us and we will make the right law enforcement contacts for you. Three, 
If you're good with programming, the family would like to create an online grid of the area that would be publicly posted. This way, people can search different areas of the grid and mark those squares each time they're searched. Four, we've posted the drone photos of the area at the website matthewweaver.tips and we're planning to post new ones there. If you can, take a look at them and follow the instructions on the website if you notice anything. Besides the angel's cap, Matthew was last seen wearing black Dickies pants, a white or black plain shirt, and red sneakers. Most people look at the first hundred or so photos and then give up, so try starting in the middle or at the end of the set. And finally, if you have any information about Matthew Weaver or about anyone mentioned in this podcast, or if you know anyone who was in the Roses Overlook area of Topanga Canyon on August 10th, 2018, please email us at livedila at tenderfoot.tv or call us at 213-204-2073. We're happy to keep your name and your identity completely anonymous. We just want any information, no matter how insignificant it may seem to you. Thank you for listening, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you to those who choose to get involved in the search for Matthew Weaver. I truly believe that together we can find him and help end this agonizing uncertainty for his family. This is a statement that Matthew's younger brother, Tyler, prepared to read on this podcast. Matthew was the kind of person that loved everyone. He would just about, sorry. He would put just about anyone before himself when it came to anything. He was genuinely such a loving and caring person, but at the same time, just very misunderstood. He may have gotten himself into trouble here and there, but everyone makes mistakes and his whole life was just filled with depression. From the moment he was born, he was struggling on a daily level with his parents and the rest of the family around him. My family's not perfect and nobody's is, but as a child growing up, it was nothing but drama and conflict for Matt and my older sister. It was almost as if they could never catch a break from all the bullshit happening in their lives, which made them feel unwanted and not loved. Considering it's been like that his entire life, he wasn't very happy with himself or anything for that matter. He didn't even take care of himself much, but if he had the chance, he would do anything to help anyone out with anything. He knew exactly what it was like to not have anyone there for him. He would have never, in his right state of mind, gone, gone out of his way. Sorry, Lord. Gone out of his way to. Sorry. He would have never, ever, in his right state of mind, gone out of his way to drive his car in that fire road and accidentally or purposely, none of us have any clue what happened, drive it off that cliff. And for all we know, he could still be alive out there in the wilderness or anywhere, but we would never know because the police we tried contacting to help us never did much to help us. We basically just had to find our own way to get search and rescue out there to help find him and. It was just frustrating because it seemed like they didn't even want to help us at all or even try to. We found his hat, we found his shirt, we tried turning it in and get fingerprints and everything. It just, nothing really worked with them. 
Cause too much. All I ask is that when we get, if, if we can get the help we never truly received, because deep down in my heart, all I want to do is figure out what happened to my brother. It's almost been a year now, and my family is just devastated by it. If there's any way you could provide us with some kind of help, that would just very much be appreciated.